0: Hello and welcome to Long Range Sensors, the show where we reminisce about growing up with Star Trek and discuss an episode from the vast library of the Star Trek franchise. Later in today's episode of Long Range Sensors, we'll be picking up the Deep Space 9 episode Civil Defence from Season 3. This episode is brought to you with the generous support of our founding members over on Patreon. Thank you so much to Cosmic, Lee Sonu, Mini Pax and Elkhorn. If you'd like to support the show by joining the crew too, uh, you can visit patreon.com forward slash long range sensors. My name is Trev and I'm based in London and joining me from across the Atlantic in Canada aka canada is alistair hello how's it going al i'm doing good how about yourself i did call
1: canada canadia there yeah um which is kind of wrong but you 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 you, you added clarity there you clarified so there's no confusion which is the good thing i don't want to anger any any canadians i'm not sure that anybody (laughs) would really mind to to be honest oh that's okay (laughs) That you (laughs) how you been doing Uh, been good, been good. And uh, I've been researching a lot of the stuff that we're about to talk about. And it's brought back a lot of memories. We've touched upon it a little bit,
0: but we're going to sort of cover it in depth, aren't we, today? So you've been researching Mm. it.
1: I have. I've been kind of going through and, um, uh, and, and remembering how much I actually had,
0: too. Right, yeah, same here. Um, Do you you still, well, you know what? We're not going to, you know, keep anybody in suspense. We might as well just dive into it. What we're going Mm. to talk about, um, again, already touched upon it a few times in the first three episodes, um, but we're going to talk about Star Trek Micro Machines. So Micro Machines were, um, well, originally, um, they were a toy produced by, I think it's Gloob?
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, and they made miniature cars. Basically, that's what they started with.
1: Yeah, they were usually about three centimeters in length, and they kind of went on and made a bunch of other things as well, like planes and uh, and bikes and and all kinds of uh, stuff. Military and, kind of, yeah, yeah. And yeah.
2: And, and this is Race the thing. Cars. I
1: I started looking back at like commercials and stuff, and and looking at uh, at print ads, like the. Th- that you would get in the Argos catalogue, yes. And realizing how many of these things I that you used to have, uh, I, I had the, and I think this is probably the most popular one. It's probably the biggest one I would imagine, um, and that's the Super City Toolbox Playset.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, got a um, lot of people had that. It was literally looked like kind of a toolbox in it that opened out into a cool-looking like display mm. and action set where you could keep your collection of micro machines, but also have like a, a base. Yeah, to kind of play with, isn't that that? That's what it was, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it kind of had like um, the Golden Gate Bridge kind of thing, which was a, an actual bridge that would raise up to let ships underneath. Uh, it had yeah. an airport, it had a ramp, it had um, a garage. It, it, there was so many different things crammed into this one area, and I think that was probably the most popular set. That I I, I know a few people that had them. I I had one. Um, I also found that I had this C7 Air Cargo action playset and the Aircraft Carrier action playset. Do you remember any of those? Yeah, the Aircraft one I remember
0: quite a lot. I think I might have had it, actually. Um, Because there was obviously regular Matchbox toy cars, um, which were very detailed, kind of, you know, sort of medium-sized cars. Uh, And the Micro Machines were like, like cars that were equally as detailed, really, but you know, a fraction of the size. I would say about half the, maybe more, about a third of the size of a mm. of a standard sort of Matchbox car. Apparently, they started in 1987. I think I do remember kind of when they started, Um and they're still going to this day. I think Hasbro have bought the rights to them, or they purchased Galoob. I think they did. They yeah.
1: Got, yeah, I can't remember when they acquired them, but uh, but there was there was that, and they, the they do still continue them. Yeah. yeah. And I was looking at some of the commercials for those as well. They're not as fun. Um, no. They don't have the, the, the Micro Machines guy anymore, which is the, the big thing. Uh, so John Machita Jr. Yes. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's fastest talker. And he's not anymore. But, oh, really?
0: Someone beat him? Wow.
1: Yeah. So I was <laughs> looking on Wikipedia because I always just assumed that this was still him. That, that yeah. nobody's beaten him yet. Uh, but I was looking on Wikipedia and it says that he's been credited in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world fastest talker with the ability to articulate 586 words per minute. Holy crap. His record was broken in 1990 by Steve Woodmore, who broke 637 words per minute, and then by Sean Shannon, who spoke 655 words per minute in 1995. However, Mashita questions the legitimacy of those who claim to be faster than he is. And he <laughs> bloody should as well. <laughs> you know how fast
0: he was because you know I'm sure you probably would have seen this as well, but he was the voice of Blur. He
1: in was Transformers. But... Yeah, in, yeah, in Transformers was the movie, yeah. Absolutely. And another
0: sort of odd connection that Micro Machines has to Transformers. I think about a year after sort of Micro Machines come out um originally and sort of blew up as being like a huge popular toy. Um Hasbro started knocking out um Tiny transformers called Micro Masters, yeah, um, who are about the same scale as micro machines, but obviously transformed in, into tiny um, robots. And there was like you got four in a pack. Um, this is at the very end, sort of like twilight years of what we now call Generation One, sort of very late eighties, a uh, uh, first part of the nineties. Mm. Um, but they're, they're pretty cool. I, I had a few of those sets. It was like a sports car set of transformer, my, transform Micro Masters, and a Decepticon set of. Um, Air attack or air patrol—they all have all individual names and bios like each character, Um and uh, they appeared in the comic uh, uh, as well. They had their own storylines in that, and yeah, so they kind of people just went nuts trying to replicate this sort of success of Micro Machines.
1: Yeah, and they, they even had like at the end of the commercials, if it's not Micro Machines, it's not the real thing, because
0: of exactly. Uh, yeah, the actual kind of the logo had like the original scale miniatures. So, yeah, they really like were pushing the fact that we started this stuff because mm. <laughs> there were so many imitations.
1: And they, they managed to get quite a few licenses as well because it wasn't just like Star Trek and Transformers. They also had um, Star Wars was another one that they had. Uh, I believe they had Power Rangers, too. Yeah, it was At a little bit point? down the line, though, wasn't it? I mean, um, that was just, a lot later. Yeah, they were
0: basically just cars and playsets and and you know airplanes and military stuff. And then it, I, I don't remember really um, there being adverts for these really. And in fact, I was quite surprised because, um, yeah, that they suddenly started coming out with like licensed stuff. Yeah, there was Power Rangers. I don't think I don't think they did like Ninja Turtles or anything like that. But they did no. do Star Wars. Which is in that weird sort of Star Wars Dark Ages that we had in like the early 90s, <laughs> where there wasn't really anything. Because I, I, I don't know if you probably have this as well, but I'm part of that weird sort of zenial generation where probably a bit too young for Star Wars to still be a big thing. So I don't remember really growing up and everybody raving about Star Wars because it was late 80s mm. that I was old enough to, you know, start getting toys and stuff. Um, and at that point, it was Ghostbusters, Ninja Turtles, and Transformers were the big things, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so I missed out on really on Star Wars.
1: Yeah, Star Wars was one of those things where I got a lot of toys through um, through car boot sales, and um, yeah, they're already kind of junk at that point, weren't, weren't they? Yeah, they, they were yeah, these little things that you just kind of you pick up, and um, I mean, I I'd seen Star Wars. I, I liked the droids and the lightsabers, but I wasn't as invested as I was with Star Trek. I I appreciate Star yeah, Wars a lot more yeah. now that I'm older, but. At the time, not so much, and I just like the toys for just being sci-fi things. And sometimes I would even use some of the ships just as alien ships that the Enterprise stumbled upon. (laughs) You know, yeah, exactly, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. But I would also like this is a whole different discussion. Like with Star Wars, I don't think (laughs) the video, the video games. I think was my introduction because they were kind of. They kept pumping out video games throughout the you know the early to mid nineties, so mm. that was how I kind of got into Star Wars. You know, um, became a fan of that as well. For us through the game, probably Shadows of the Empire, weirdly on, on the N64, mm. and then it blew up again with the you know the special editions and Phantom Menace and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, um, I remember. Um, I don't remember seeing any advertise advertisements about Star Trek Micro Machines. I first. Um, my first encounter with uh, Star Trek micro machines was Christmas '93. Um, I remember that Christmas very fondly because I was um, begging my parents to get me a Sega Game Gear, um, and I got the Sega Game Game Gear. But also, I got like two or three sets of Star Trek micro machines. Also, I was already like I was only like ten years old, but I was already like mm. absolutely mental for Star Trek already at this point, and I was blown away by them. It was literally like. I, I, I swear, I played with these Star Trek Micro Machines nearly as much as my Game Gear, which is like, you know, saying <laughs> something. But I, I was genuinely like, oh my God, these are wicked. Like, I knew what Micro Machines were. I saw them in like Woolworths and like they're really common, mm. fairly cheap toys. But I had no inkling that they were doing, um, I think it must have been like literally in the UK, like like December 93 was when they became readily available. Because I don't recall seeing them and saying to my parents, oh, I'd love some of those Star Trek Micro Machines. And obviously, as soon as I got them for Christmas, um, I was absolutely hooked because they yeah. were just super detailed replicas. They look a bit janky now when you look back, obviously, compared to some of the stuff you can get now. But back then, like, they were freaking amazing. So, I mean, how did you get get them? Uh,
1: well, I, I never saw a commercial spoil of them either. But looking on yeah. YouTube, they're definitely were some, uh, even in the UK like that's how it seems but I, I never saw them but for like me for actual
0: Star Trek or just for Micro Machines I mean there, was, there were Micro Machines but
1: for actual Star Trek Micro Machines there, there are commercials oh, right. um wow they're, they're not great <laughs> they're really yeah, not yeah. great um, you could be Captain Picard <laughs> yeah it's, it's not the kind that kind of gets you psyched up you just be psyched up just because you know that there's toys of the Enterprise there yeah for me it's and we've kind of touched on this before but Toys of Us Oh hell yeah! was the big thing for me. And walking down the aisle in Toys R Us, they had tons of Star Trek stuff. And at one point, there was a massive section of that aisle that was just the micro-machines.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is mind-blowing for people probably now, because I, I don't really know what the deal is with Star Trek toys now. They're kind of those JJ Universe ones. Don't know if that's kind of died off a bit, but yeah, literally going to like when Playmates got the license again. That's you know we'll go into a whole episode of that, but when uh, Galoob got the license for the micro machines, yeah, you could they they had an entire aisle of which now thinking about it, I would love to be able to do that now. I'd go into a toy shop to check out <laughs> a, a Star Trek aisle totally now and probably buy stuff. Uh, but yeah, you could there was an entire. Aisle of, and to in your average toy shop, I remember a like, lot in Colchester where, um, near where I grew up, where all the toy shops were, um, they would have a Star Trek section, you know, not just like a few little bits here, like, like a Captain Kirk and a Spock figure, mm. and that's it. Everything else is G.I. Joe and Transformers. It was literally like an entire, like, chunk, large chunk, if not an entire aisle of Star Trek toys. There was that much stuff out in those days. And we were obviously the perfect age because we were like, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, around when that golden era of toys hit. Um, mm.
1: So yeah, it was just f-
0: absolute heaven, wasn't it, for us as Trekkies at that age?
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, and you said that like you got a few sets um, yeah. along with your Game Boy. Do you remember which ones you had?
0: Yeah, I think I've still got them as well. Um, there, there, there wasn't as many, obviously, to start off with, they just
1: pumped out like maybe th- four or five at the was- start, but I got... <laughs> There was a first edition, which there was three of. Uh, there was the original series, uh, movies, and Next Generation.
0: I got, the, I think, I got that those all, all three, um, which was obviously brilliant. I was like, "Wow!" I got the whole lot mm. straight off the bat. Thanks, parents. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got the movie one, which was awesome because it had one of my favourite ships, the Reliant. Uh, it had yeah. um, the Excelsior, and it had one other thing that I can't remember. Uh, Klingon bird of my... prey. Klingon Bird of Prey, yeah. And they all looked absolutely amazing. Like the detail on like the hull of like, especially the Reliant, you know, you had like obviously the registration number, you had the name of the ship, the nacelles had like t- the tiny little like, um, the t- Starfleet Delta on, on, on the nacelles. And mm. you had the like the, um, the registration number on, on, on the nacelles at the, at the back with really crisp, like, like detailed, like, like it looked really good. Um, also, there was like, I think there was a faint sort of aztec The color was really accurate. The Excelsior wasn't quite as good. It was obviously out of scale because obviously mm. they had to fit a particular scale. So the Excelsior would also be a lot bigger than, than the Reliant um, if it was to scale. But um, they were the same scale. So it was a little bit inaccurate in that sense. But, you know, that, that was fine. Uh, but that was pretty good as well. Um, obviously, they were plastic. And I had the next gen one. Which you got a ball cube Ferengi uh, ship and a um, Ferengi marauder and a Romulan warbird. Again, all look wicked. I was a
1: bit annoyed you didn't that, get the Enterprise. That like, might have been a different me. edition because the I I had that one as well, but it had the uh, the Vulture class uh, Klingon attack. No, class.
0: you're right. That it did. It had the Vulture class. I think I got another set later that had warbird in it. You're right, yeah. Yeah,
1: it does, it does have the Romulan yeah. Warbird, but the Ferengi ship came in a later set. Um, but Yes. But there, there were, so, like, it, it's weird, because at the time, there wasn't really anything that had that level of detail. But at the same time, there were still issues with these. So scale... There were, yes. So you, that you because i I think we should probably (laughs) set right expectations when it comes to the quality of these yes yeah because scale scale was definitely a thing where they were all pretty much roughly the same size they were not in scale with each other
0: remember we are
1: comparing this we're comparing this to having nothing
0: there was no mini
1: star trek stuff this is the first so yeah we'll take it with a pinch of salt (laughs) and and it's all pre-painted yeah which was fantastic yeah and you'd have things like the Galaxy and the Nebula class, which are basically just like a kit bash of the, you, you know, it's basically just the, the Galaxy class squished in. And yes. the saucer section and hull and warp nacelles would all be completely different sizes to the Galaxy class. You know, yes. so you'd have all these kind of things there. Um, the Enterprise D was not out initially because part in this first edition, there was the original USS Enterprise that was in a set that I did not have. Um, yeah, I had
0: that set. Um, so I got the original um, Enterprise, um, and there's a we're, we're talking about the defects. There was something that really annoyed me about this as a kid. Um, I got the original Enterprise. You got the Romulan uh, Klingon Battlecruiser, and the Romulan uh, bird of prey. Yeah, um, which again all look wicked, but yeah. Um, so, in what defects, you know, were ones that you kind of encountered? Because I'll probably be able to relate to this
1: oh the nacelles is one. Oh, yes uh, the yes. nacelles would often be bent because you're, you're talking this kind of um i don't know what how you would describe the material that these were made out of it was like slightly bendy plastic not ma- yeah not, not like brittle in any way Almost but, feeling um, a bit like rubber, yes, to some degree, but more rigid than that. Yeah, it's not just that they would bend; like they would arrive bent in some cases.
0: Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't have to do anything. You'd open it up and like my the original series pack that I had, the Enterprise uh, saucer, um, hmm. the uh, the sort of the, the neck that connects it to the secondary hull. <laughs> Was it tilted? Had, had started. Yeah, it started. To, it hadn't <laughs> fully been slotted in. And for the life of me, I couldn't put it back in. It was just screwed, completely screwed up,
2: and, oh. and the nacelles
0: slightly wonky. So I had a really gammy-looking Enterprise, you know, original Constitution class um, Enterprise, which is an, which oh. is a, annoying because everything else about it looked cool. We had like the it was the right color, all everything was painted well. <laughs> it had the tiny little Delta on the, you know, on yeah. the sides of the secondary hull. It had the dish, the deflector dish, um, but it had a wonky
1: saucer that made it look stupid.
0: <laughs> it really oh. annoyed me.
1: I, I used to pretend that the Excelsior was the Enterprise D when I was a kid because it didn't right, exist yeah. as a toy. But when, that, when the Enterprise D came out, um, like there's a clear gap where the saucer section is attached to the star drive section. And, that was, and, and this seemed to be common on a lot of the models, that it was kind of tilted to the side. So if you yes. looked at the ship head on, the saucer section would be at an angle and the warp nacelles would be at, uh, at different angles as well. And one of them would probably be bent halfway down the cell.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's annoying because they made such a good effort to get like mm. like the little details of you know the United Federation of Planets strap line that was on the secondary hull and like the putting the you know putting the right colors on and painting the right bits the right colors but then the actual production the tolerances are obviously quite you know you know not great on when when they're just yeah that's close enough whatever put it in the package send it <laughs> out it kind of did kill it a little bit didn't didn't it because of yeah
1: that. I mean. Absolutely, bonus points for all the registry information. Yes, you know, that that to me was just a nice attention to detail. Um, and and one thing I'll say is that I I, I was looking into this and because uh, it was, and I think I remember this as well from the Netflix documentary, "The Toys That Made Us."
2: Yeah, where, I, I'll, yeah.
1: I'll watch this. Yeah, where they didn't realize that a huge audience for this would have been adult collectors. They aimed all of these exclusively at kids and they kind of realized that had they aimed it more at adults that, you know, and actually put more work into that these would be more solid and higher detail, they probably could have sold more, but because they did a lower detail and you know, obviously they did end up bending and stuff. They didn't sell as many as they otherwise would have liked to. But I think that for us at our age, they were the right toy for us. Because we were kids.
0: Yeah. Uh, like we were just saying, yeah, we, we hit that perfect age where all this Playmate stuff and Galoob stuff like, just, just like, was amazing. But it's interesting because they weren't aiming for the adult collectors. But at the same time, you got nice little display stands for the ships that would mm. actually pop into a little hole in the bottom. Yeah, they, they were really clear as well. yeah. And they were really sturdy and nice and you could actually make a nice little, you know, display sort of thing, you know, whether it's just on the table or something. Where you could just have all the ships out. I think I had them out, you know, I would sort of mm-hmm. play with them and then I'd pop them on their little display bit thing and just pop them on a table. And they were pretty durable. Like I said, they were of this weird rubbery plastic stuff. But you could drop them and like, you know, throw them around and they wouldn't really you know, um, get damaged too easily. I did have like um, one of the nacelles on my Reliant came off though.
2: Oh, wow.
0: Um it literally broke off. Well, I fixed it, I put, um
1: I glued it back on. <laughs> I, I never had anything break off, but and this this is one of those things where you get an idea because you're kind of craving something, and you end up regretting it. Absolutely regretting it. Because oh, yeah. obviously you get the Enterprise D that came out a little bit later. They also had a collector's set that had a bunch of them um uh, because most of these would be in blister packs of like three ships
0: yeah i think it was always three normally yeah
1: yeah then they started releasing packs that had multiple ships in so my enterprise de1 came in uh, a next generation pack which had six uh ships in it had the romulan warbird it had the vulture uh class uh, attack cruiser for the klingons Um, It had the Borg Cube, you know, so ones that had already been released that I already had. But it also had the Ferengi Marauder. It had the Type 6 Shuttlecraft, uh, the Berman, which was a really good model. And then it also had the the Enterprise D, and that's when I got my one. And it would come with a special edition ship as well, which in that case was the Enterprise A. But there was a set later on, that I really wanted, but I couldn't justify it because I already had a lot of these ships. It was, you know, it was pretty expensive at the time um, because of how many ships were in there. I can't remember how many were in, but it was basically from a, a lot of the movies uh, and it had the Enterprise D with the detachable saucer section because it also had like the All Good Things Enterprise in it. It had the Enterprise B. So it was a, kind of taken from generations and things.
0: Yeah, those box sets were wicked, yeah. The extra yeah. junk you got with them was just so cool.
1: Yeah, but the the thing is that it had the detachable saucer. Mine did not. Yeah. So I I think I had... I can't remember if I had two Enterprise Ds or just one, but I remember taking a knife to it and making my own separating saucer. Oh, my section. God. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I... Well, that would I, do I, it, yeah. Yeah, I could it at the right point. Not where it separates from the you know where the model separates from the sort where you had that kind of line where they've kind of attached it. I made my own where it's supposed to be on the ship.
0: You will separate, damn you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and I used blu-tack to and BlueTack actually surprisingly held up pretty well for it. Um I was quite happy with work, it. But, yeah. Yeah. But it's one of those ones that as time went on, it's like, oh man, I really regret doing this. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to well, when the you set, want though. the ship to separate, if you want to separate, you've got to separate. Yeah. Oh, They also did, like, pewter sets, um, if I recall. Uh, yeah. I um, never saw in person. I only ever saw those in magazines. I did see them. Um, I remember,
0: again, I'm going to reference Star Trek Monthly for like the billionth time on this podcast, but I to get, like... Star Trek Monthly, you know, in the, in the mid-90s, uh, I think starting around sort of late 94, uh, early 95, mm. I was like, subscribed to it. because I was like, you know, that crazy for Star Trek at that point. And they would always have a section in it, which would be the, the latest toys and, and um, collectibles that are coming out. So mm. for a good, like, you know, couple of years, like Micro Machines were featured prominently in that section. And yeah, one of the, one of the sets that I always used to kind of draw over were those like pewter... Um sets i ne- I think I did see them in person. I think it was in i saw them in um it's a, again another place i've always i've referenced a few times a comic shop um that like I used to go to in Colchester called Ace comics. They would often get those box sets um I don't recall them selling the individual three ship sets, but they would have these big box sets, and I used to mm. like just look at them and just draw over them. I think they're about maybe thirty quid, maybe forty quid. Um, but yeah. yeah, you basically got like a set of like like um, eight, nine or ten, I think, like bronze colored or like silver colored sets. I don't know if they were like, me- actually, the, they weren't metal, were they? They were still like the same plastic, um, I think. Um, I, see, that's because I, I,
1: I never actually saw them. All I know is that they did like a pewter set, which, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure would have been metal, but. It's hard to tell if they were just painted silver I, I I honestly don't know but yeah given that they were advertised as pewter i'm I'm taking it to mean that those were metal um,
0: yeah, you could be right, I mean to me, they still look like they're just the same plastic, just like painted, and there's nothing on the yeah. boxes to say these yeah. are like die cast metal, which they would have gone nuts, and like trying to promote and they put them in bit cost a lot oh. more money but oh, yeah you' just um, you
1: just remind me just talking about the boxes as well because I was watching an unboxing of the set with the um uh, with the separating saucer section. Because when I saw that pop up on YouTube, it's like, well, I, I never really got to even see one of those in person outside of the box. So I wanted to see how it actually attached and stuff. Um, yeah, a yeah. peg. They just use like a peg for it to plug in. But on the back of the box, because that one came with a nebula class, the USS Farragut. And apparently on the back of the box, it describes all the ships. And it said that the Farragut was Kirk's first ship. So, yeah, yes. that is true as well. I think that is actually, they've built to check that. Yeah, a USS Farragut was not the Nebula class. That was oh, a... That was Farragut from Generations, wasn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was the a end. Farragut that he had served on, but that was a completely different ship from, you know, from a long time ago. Completely different um, class of
0: ship. Now I, I think you'll find that... Captain Kirk just went practically straight from Starfleet Academy to captain of the, of the Enterprise. I think we know that. <laughs> the timeline has now fixed that annoying Farragut era that, that he had. Probably just angered... Probably just pissed off a lot, a lot of people there. He uh, <laughs> wasn't even born on Earth.
1: He wasn't um, born on Earth. On
0: Iowa. <laughs> so, in Iowa, so yeah. Um, but no, yeah, they, they were amazed. I mean, yeah... The, I can't remember, did they go in detail, those little those little bios on the back? I think they were just kind of like, you know, it was built here and it had this captain and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, they, it was just sort of like minor detail, but it was just interesting that they, they'd kind of gotten some information. But it wasn't necessarily right. <laughs> I think that they just did a yeah. they, may, maybe they were using the Simon and Schuster stuff, and they just did a quick search through the encyclopedia, and like oh, for U.S.S. Farragut, good, Captain Kirk, there, there we go. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Maybe
0: maybe it was just kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, it might have been difficult, you know, because like in those, I mean, the first sets we sort of mentioned, like came out in nineteen ninety three. You know, I don't yeah. think there was a Star Trek encyclopedia then. I think that came out the year after. So, might have be, been actually, yeah yeah you might be able to like the technical manual i think was a couple of, it was like 91 or 92 so they would have got bits there are there is some information in that that's like you know but just about the enterprises really there's nothing about any other ship that turned up well, you would have had to have watched the episode and then you would have had to make a lot of it up you know
1: yeah i mean the farragut would have been in the sort of, the generation set so this would have been a lot later down the line so yes. those encyclopedias would have existed back then but certainly not when uh when they were doing like their first and second editions Uh, One thing that I will say is that whilst we've been talking about the poor quality of some of these, there were some which were fantastic. Like I know you mentioned the Reliant, which was a brilliantly made ship, and I think it was just just the way that it's built. Some fared better than others. Some fared better than others. There wasn't really much give for anything to go wrong with it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I still think to this day, the Borg Cubes that they made are amongst some of the best ball cube models that you've been able to get period. Yeah, I remember I got
0: sort of two. One was like just a fairly basic, like black colored one, but still the detail on it was great. And there was another mm. one that was sort of lighter gray with kind of damaged sort of bits.
1: Paint yeah. On it,
0: which is very cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I had, to, I think I ended up with like three in the end and they, they all had a slightly different offset color to each other. Yeah. So you could almost they kind of tell which it. one's which. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but Borg Cubes seem to be this very difficult thing. Like it's, it's, it's just a cube. But the kind of detail I found that different manufacturers making different sets, whether they're collectible models, they're big, small. Because um, I think you had the Eagle Moss collector's Borg Cube. Yes, I did. Uh, I
0: you probably would have seen it when you, when you came around mine a mm. few
1: times. Yeah. Um, Which was just um, from uh, like subscribing, uh, if I recall.
0: Yeah, you got a few bits. Um, I can't remember all of them. I've still got them. Uh, you get the enterprise. We got the Enterprise D dedication plaque, which is mm. very cool. Uh, the paint job wasn't the best on it though. Um, and um, you got a ball which lights up, which is the one you're talking about, which is very cool. We're a really nice ship. And I think you got like um there's like one extra thing that I can't remember is another. I think it was like maybe the fu- the future of, like Enterprise D with the three nacelles. Right, Maybe okay. one or something like that. But yeah, yeah, um, that was cool, what Eagle Moss did. And obviously it lights up and looks really, really cool. Um, yeah, but that, that's one but of yeah. the
1: few ones where like, the, like all the piping and everything on the outside kind of looked good. But a lot of other ones, like the Playmates cube, I never owned. That looked okay. But and I, think, yeah. I, think, I think that the Micro Machines just benefited from just being so small yeah in all honesty, it's almost like the larger they make them, the harder it is to make a ball cube look decent without it being too cost prohibitive
0: yeah, I think the trouble with the playmates one is it looks like just sort of just sort of you know gas piping on the outside yeah. of, uh, of an inner cube. Um, so it looks it, it looks a bit like an exaggerated cube I guess is a good way of putting it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would argue that the micro machines. Cube, probably looks a little bit better obviously it's much smaller but they've got kind of the detail on the outside a bit a bit closer to what we saw in the tv show yeah
1: yeah and i think three more that i'll, I'll mention uh, are the oberth class which i wasn't really that into the oberth class like watching the show or the films but when i got the micro machine i really started to appreciate just how good it looked when you could actually look at it from any angle and that made me love that ship.
0: Yeah. Like the medical sort of ship.
1: Yeah. The
0: Pasteur and the, gr- the Grissom. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And then the Deep Space Nine set, which came with Deep Space Nine, it had the Galaclass Cardassian ship. And oh, that
0: was a great, that was a great set.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The runabout too. The runabout is amazing. Like the detail on that was perfect. And because again, it's just such a solid build nothing went wrong with those they were just completely solid same with the shuttle craft actually the type 6 shuttle those ones just don't warp or bend at all but deep space 9 looked great the paintwork was great it had yellow on it for the lights but that being said the pylons would always bend yeah, I wasn't a fan of the color. No, I think the color was a bit
0: too—it's a bit too bright for me. Oh, okay. And it had like bright yellow sort of accents on certain things. I was like, "Is that does that what it looks like?" Okay, it might—it might well—well it might well be actually be what the studio model look. I don't know what reference they would have used. I mean, hmm. I would assume they probably—I doubt they would have literally been like, "Here, here's the studio model." They would have been given, "You can, you can come in like you know on the weekend and take photos of the studio models and use that as your reference to." Because now you could just get like 3D like models, can't they? Like the Eagle Moss guys will get a 3D, mm. a 3D model that they can print out and you get a perfect sort of thing. I'm pretty sure those Galoob guys would have had to have literally just gone to like, you know, Paramount, taken a photo, a few photos of the ship and, you know, or maybe even, I guess they could have got the AMT, uh, the the AMT slash Ertl model kits and maybe put some together and just kind of, Miniaturize that—they're kind of basically reverse engineering it all. Um, and there wasn't any prior miniature starships of any kind, so they were literally—they were starting from scratch. These guys, big time.
1: Yeah, I, I know that I kind of started to drop off around the time that the Voyager ships got released. Um, I remember kind of seeing those in Starship Monthly, but I'd kind of moved away from from all that. I think my money was kind of going yeah, to other things. I think it sort of finished.
0: Around the late nineties, yeah. didn't, didn't it? I think it was when it when it sort of died off, and the quality really dropped dropped off, didn't it? I think those very last sets. Yeah, I
1: didn't get Voyager. I didn't get the Defiant. I know. I remember seeing them coming out, but I just, I, I just didn't really continue. But were were there any kind of standout ones for you?
0: Um, I think you probably mentioned a lot of them. I mean, um, the Reliant. I, I, I love that that model. I like the Reliant ship generally as well. Um, it's a beautiful ship. Um, I liked um the Klingon Battle Cruiser in the original series set. That looked great. Again, one that you can't really screw up too much because it's quite a solid build. Um, the runabout um in Deep Space Nine. Uh the Excelsior was pretty good. I did get some wonky nacelles on mine a little bit, but not too mm. bad. Um, I did like that. Um, like you say, the ball cube and the Vorchar the attack cruiser is really good. Mm. Um I don't think I really had any other sets after that. I think I moved on to maybe the Playmates figures um, at that point and probably like maybe trying to get in in on on other model kits. Um, But to be honest, you can pick them up fairly easily these days. They made so many of these bloody things. Um, I think they kind of, from what I can see, I I think 96 was when was their last kind of foray or their last few sets got issued. And I think that was it. After that, um, and I think micro machines generally, I think it, it kind of like the fad had completely died um, at that point. So I think mm. as a company, I don't think they were doing well. They're back now; you can buy them to this day. Now Hasbro have bought them, and they do like. Um, I'm, I'm quite a big fan of GI Joe, and they do like GI Joe micro machines. Um, so I've been, I've been, I've been interested in getting those, but they're a bit naff. The ones that I've looked at, um, annoyingly. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, they, they yeah they sort of died off. Um, but we've got other alternatives now, haven't we? Really, to that, like that's micro it. I mean, that are better.
1: The nostalgia for m- micro machines is what draws me there and makes me kind of think. Like, yeah, I, I I want more of them. I want I want to get them back. I I um. There's about sixteen years between my brother and I, and so as he was growing up, I started letting him have my old micro machines so that he could grow up with those. So I, I don't oh, nice want to one. have my sets anymore. So part of me is kind of like, I'd like to get some more. But at the same time, like we've said, with the just the way that they bend, there are so many other options. So you've got not just the Eagle Moss ones, but even ones from um, like Attack Wing, which is a tabletop game, which has miniatures. Like those are so much yeah. more accurately detailed. Hot Wheels
0: do starships. They're a bit bigger, but they're really cool, cool looking, really detailed.
1: Mm. Yeah, so it's it's almost kind of like there are better options out there, but there was definitely just the timing of these things, and just the fact that you would just see them just on hooks, upon hooks, on shelves, just lining the wall of an entire aisle in uh, in, in places like Toys R Us.
0: Yeah, and obviously, you know, we, we we were too young to We would look at the model kits, we talked about them in the previous episode, mm. didn't we? And we were too young really to be able to build those things, and you, and you can't really play with them. And then we sort of hit that point in the 90s where we got like the Playmates toys, um, and these micro-machines were really perfect to play with, because they were tiny, but they were super detailed, you could have all kinds of battles and cool little Star Trek episodes you'd dream up in your own mind, you know, which I'm sure we both did. Yeah. Um and-
1: And the sets themselves, like the choices that they made as to what ships went into what pack, wasn't actually that bad. Uh, You know, they did kind of match up with a lot of things. They, they, you know, they'd be themed. And I think as a kid, you you appreciated that you got three in a set. It was never buying them individually.
0: Yeah, you've got a whole episode, basically, that you could make (laughs) from that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They were good value for money.
1: You'd either have one hero ship and two enemy ships, or you'd have two hero ships, one enemy ship, that kind of thing. So, yeah.
0: Well, you get annoyed with that first, like, next generation set um, where you just got, like, basically three enemy ships and, they, you know, they didn't make an Enterprise <laughs> D until until a few a few sets later, which is yeah. kind of weird. But, but yeah. But, yeah, but the, um,
1: the Excelsior was a good stand-in
0: for the imagination of a young child. So. Yeah. They were still around in next gen era. So, yeah, you could, and so was the Reliant. So was the Miranda, <laughs> Miranda class. So, mm. yeah um you could make up some kind of cool scenarios with all that stuff especially if you have the whole the whole lot which i did um until they started bringing out more but very very cool toys we've got great alternatives now you can still pick them up on ebay but yeah a lot we've been saying you might want to be a bit wary and maybe check what the condition of these are because even straight out the box there are some defects to look out for especially if you're looking for ships with a lot of like kind of spindly bits and bendy bits you know um You'd have better luck maybe if you grab the Deep Space Nine or some of the ships that are a bit chunkier. I think it's probably our advice, isn't it, Al?
1: Yeah. Or, you know, if, you're, if you have kids that are getting into Star Trek and, you know, you want yeah. something that's going to be fun for them. I, I, that you just cannot go wrong with because they're, they're aimed at kids and, you know, kids aren't going to be quite as nitpicky. <laughs> with them as we, yeah. as we now are in old age. There were little frustrations <laughs> back then. I think now we would yeah. be like a little bit more miffed. But, you know, for for younger people, I think I think they're, they're still going to be great. And if you can get them cheap on eBay, yeah.
0: They're a lot cheaper than some of the Eagle Moss ones as well. And people complain about them. Uh, so so <laughs> there, there we go. It never stops when it comes to Trekkies. Um, so, well, we've mentioned Dick Space Nine already a bit in terms of the Micro Machine set. So what we're going to do now on long-range sensors, we're picking up the Deep Space Nine season three episode, Civil Defense.
1: Wait, wait. Is this does this mean that we're finally having an episode that isn't from season two of a show? I know, right? Yeah, that was that was, that was weird, wasn't it? We kept
0: hitting <laughs> season two for some reason. Yeah, it must be. It's just generally the second season is always an oddball, isn't it? Because mm. you get. The episodes that will, like, you know, the show's hitting a little bit of an early bit of a stride. So you're getting some genuinely good ones, but you never really have any super famous ones um, yeah. that, you know, people talk about. It's often this, the, the later seasons where you get that. Um, but yeah, we're doing it. It's the seventh <laughs> episode of season three, in fact. Mm. Um, so this would have been a point in time in Star Trek sort of land where Next Gen would have finished. Um, earlier that year. Um, so it's November 94 when the uh, the episode aired, just before Voyager started. So actually, interestingly enough, this episode would have happened with Deep Space Nine
1: basically being on its own. Yeah, it would have actually, yeah. And that wasn't for a long period of time either. No. Um, like that handoff wasn't that long.
0: Voyager started in, uh, well, again, we're using American dates here, but In America, that would have been uh, January uh, 95, I think, is when Voyager started.
2: Mm.
0: So, yeah, I think we got this episode. um, I think we were already hitting like 1996, 97 before we got it. We got it on VHS in March 1995. Um, So, you know, not too far from its actual original airing, which is kind of cool. Well, five months. um, If you're someone that had one of those subscriptions to the videotapes, you wouldn't have to wait too long. But yeah, how does this episode kick off, Al? In an awe process.
1: <laughs> Which I, I where all the great episodes start. <laughs> that's it. Just it's just there. Um and it it's great because it's one of the, the first times we kind of see an area of Deep Space Nine that you know that you don't normally see. Uh, you know, that's not one of the regular standing sets. I think it may be and I, I might be wrong about this. But I know that they had the episode set in the mirror universe not that long earlier, yeah, and I it may be reusing elements from there when uh, when they were kind of captured and, uh, and thrown in there. but it, it, this one opens with, uh, with Miles and Jake in the all processor, and and Miles is talking about how you know it, it used to process about 20,000 tons of all a day yeah and and he also says that like it would have been about 55 degrees celsius there and i don't know i haven't really paid attention until i was watching this episode again the fact that he says celsius because of course he's irish yeah but is it celsius because he's irish or is celsius what they tend to use when describing temperature in star trek
0: I mean, I, I would think, it, you know, if they're Americans, they they would use Fahrenheit, I guess, which is obviously completely yeah. different. I mean, 50, what, what did he say it was? It was 50, whatever it was. Obviously, that. 55. Yeah. I mean, a, a hot day in Celsius, you know, like, like in, in the UK, for example, if it got to like 28, 29 degrees or 30 degrees, that is a really hot day, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, there's been times in the UK when it's gone beyond that and been up to like 34 or 35. I mean, a day like that, if you went outside, you wouldn't be able to go. If you walked for a few minutes, you'd be out of breath and sweating like mad. Um, so mm. it was an interesting context. But then if you're an American, you'd be like, well, what's that? Is that bad?
1: <laughs> if you yeah. just use the Fahrenheit. But part of me kind of thinks that maybe, like when I think back, that they did do it in Celsius as just like a, a Federation standard. Sure. But I, I could be wrong. That's, that's what we need to look back on. But yeah. he, he's, he's looking at converting it into a deuterium refinery. And I think it kind of goes to show just how technology's changed. Because in enterprise, in the episode "Marauders," where the Klingons are bullying this species to, you know, to sort of force labor to refine a bunch of it. Yeah. That um, that it it takes them tons of time just to get even a liter of this stuff.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because because deuterium. I don't. I only recall it, recall it being like a an element or like a fuel or whatever it is that gets mentioned a lot. It was Voyager that I was like, they keep going going on about They keep saying, oh, we're running out of deuterium. We've got to find more. Um, I don't know when it started. I don't really recall them ever mentioning it in Next Generation. Definitely not in the original I'm pretty sure it
1: is. Yeah. But it's, uh, I mean, deuterium was supposed to be a fuel that was part of the matter-antimatter reaction. So I think that it was kind of a catalyst that was used along with dilithium. Yeah,
0: I think everyone knows that as like that. That's the Star Trek fuel, isn't it? But there's this secondary bit to it, isn't there, which is this deuterium stuff.
1: And, and then Cisco comes in, and uh, you know, and, and Jake's struggling to delete one of the files because it's got no name. Yeah, completely blank file.
0: We've got that really awkward point in season three where Cisco becomes the double Cisco where we get the goatee and the hair, <laughs> um, which until the end, I might have like ruined it for people that are currently binge-watching Deep Space Nine. God, I wish I could go back to discovering Deep Space Nine for the first time. It was so exciting. But, yeah, um, we've like, both seen like a billion times now. But yeah, um, yeah, we get that awkward transition. One of the many legendary Star Trek hair and facial, uh, head and facial hair transitions that many characters have um, Janeway's got lost. Yeah. probably the record, but Cisco, you know, and Riker, you know, are up there in terms of well, air, big time. Well, it's it's
1: it's different because um, Jonathan Fakes wanted to grow his beard, but they wanted him to be clean shaven. It wasn't until he came back after season one they saw him with the beard and were like, actually, that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, the with, um, him because he said um, it looks nautical. <laughs> yes, he said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Kate Mulgrew, that was just. Uh, a lot of the production staff just nervous uh, about you know how to have her hair. Does she look like she can command a ship with this hairstyle? Let's change it to a different hairstyle. She had her time. hair down.
0: Um, there, there are pictures of uh, the, on the set of Caretaker. You can, if you've got mm. uh, memory alpha, you can see them. And maybe in the Voyager Companion, I think uh, if you have a look in those, there's uh, they filmed like two or three days. There's a whole like like again when we get to caretaker. There's a whole like like drama go that go that went on with like, making that first episode mm, with Jane White generally, yeah. just not just Kate Kate Mo- Mo- Mulgrew, but um yeah she had she actually had, had her hair down and like
1: kind of as a like a is it a
0: bob you call it like a bob yeah uh, and um there are some
1: pictures I I I, I just nonchalantly say yeah like I understand hairstyle yeah. you <laughs> know you know you know <laughs>
0: women's hair hairstyles. <laughs> um, and yeah, they filmed like a uh, caretaker, uh, two or three days with her, with that haircut. And I don't know what happened. Like some like sh- idiot, like, you know, production person, oh, the ratings will go down if someone has this particular haircut we've, we've seen in like the demographics. So she has to have her hair up or yell yeah, because she doesn't look commanding enough or something, which is crap. Mm. You know, there've been women, they're just captains already had, with her hair the whole time. Yeah. Captain Garrett had a hair down. She was the captain of the Enterprise, you know, in, in Next Generation, in the yes, the Enterprise, so whatever. But yeah, um, so they had to refill yeah. huge chunks of that episode when they finally figured out what haircut she was going to have, and they changed it again anyway
1: in like, like two or three seasons. But yeah, anyway, yes. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and Avery Brooks, the only reason he wasn't bald, which is his normal style, is that they were concerned about having a second bald captain. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and there was so another wasn't... as well. There was another, there was that, yeah, which is actually kind of a weird, like, point, but it is a good point. Um, he was in another TV show, which my mum used to watch. Because every time I watched Deep Space Nine, she'd be like, oh, yeah, look, it's that dude off this thing. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? It's the one if... where
1: he was in the black leather jacket the whole time. Yeah,
0: that. Um, he looks like a bit like yeah. Shaft,
1: you know, Shaft. Mm. Um,
0: but he's not. Um, he's in a TV series called Spencer for Hire, where he has the bald head and the goatee. And they didn't want yeah. him to to look like that because they thought people would think he was that character, which is ridiculous. Um, it's like uh, I remember another. This is a funny like anecdote about how marketing people are like st- stupid some sometimes. Like they didn't call the video game Wipeout twenty ninety seven for the PlayStation. They didn't want to call that Wipeout twenty ninety seven. They didn't want to call it that name in America. Because they were worried people would ask, "Oh, where were the previous two thousand and ninety six wipeout games?" (laughs) Like they didn't think people would know that was the
1: year. (laughs) So it's called Wipeout Excel in in America, but yeah, the assumption always seems to be that the audience is dumb. Exactly, exactly. But going back to the episode, I mean, Jake deleting a file with no name—like you try to, but. You know, it would make sense. Uh, yeah. But then the moment he tries to, uh, the computer starts responding with unauthorized computer energy detected in all processing unit five. Yes. Enter access code.
0: And that's a bit worrying when any computer says, says that to you.
1: Yeah. And they've got five seconds, which doesn't give you much time. But That's kind of ridiculous. I, but that's, it's, it's very Cardassian. You would panic. You would You would
0: panic even if you knew the code being yelled at like that. To do it in five seconds. Yeah. Oh, my I, God. I oh know. Oh, God. What is it? I wrote it down. No, I didn't.
1: <laughs> I feel like if it was a Federation computer, it would be 30 seconds. Cardassian, five makes sense. Exactly. Because you need to be efficient yeah. and they're angry and like kind of Nazi like. Yeah. And then we get the security countermeasures uh, getting enabled and then a recording of Gul Cat addressing yes. the Bajoran workers who are trying to seize control of the station because the computer assumes that that's what's going on but i do love that he went to the trouble of recording these messages it wasn't just like (laughs) let's have an alert and then and then i'll address them. it's like i will pre-record all of these which means that he can one respond to the bajorans immediately uh but two he can do so even if he's busy doing other things like like Kiva's mother. That, what, what?
0: Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, because he like literally. Um,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, uh, um, yeah, and there's another. There's a whole, whole, literally an episode about that. But um, yeah, um, I, I want to know what recording those, those like these little notifications look like. He was just in his office and thought, "Oh, I need to get around and do those like emergency, like you know, security defense system videos." Did he have like a director helping him, like? Like Ducat, Ducat, right, right, this one, you're really angry, okay, babes. You've got a really, like, yeah, shout at the screen. The guys are taking over the station. Can you, can you look a bit, more, a bit more angry on this one, please? And this is what it looked like.
1: Yeah. He was so self-obsessed that I don't think he needed a director. I think he would have just been having a good time anyway. And, uh, and just kind of going like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this for yeah. when they write the, it. Yeah. But we end up with a magnetic seal on the door. And then Ops ends up hearing a message as well. So Kira contacts Cisco about it, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And then Odo tries to use his clearance codes because his Cardassian ones are still active. And yes, because he's always trapped in
0: his office, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this is where some of the, I'm going to call them pairings, start to happen. Yes. Because Quark appears and he's like, you know, not now, Quark. And, and, uh, you know, Quark's offering to help. Uh, So Odo is kind of telling him, you know, well, not unless you have like a level nine Cardassian security clearance. And he's like, well, I have levels one to seven. And Odo (laughs) only has (laughs) levels one to six. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't for a moment think is that, you know, I, I don't think he was given. Levels one to seven. I I get the impression that he bought levels one to seven.
0: I think that's what's implied.
1: Yes, yeah. that he, he would like, have managed like. to do some dodgy deal with the security officers somewhere on the station during the yeah. occupation.
0: Yeah, and also to give some background as to, I think we also already know at this point it had been mentioned. Um, I think maybe in like, in like the first episode it explained that these were two people that had kind of just stayed when uh, the Bajorans Mm. took over the station. Um, Although I think Odo was was always working for the... No, he wasn't working for the Bajorans, was he? He was kind of just the general station security person that was working for whoever kind of was in charge of it, really. But he was always a good, generally a good person. You know, he believed in, you know, the law and he believed in, you know, justice and all Mm. that stuff. So he was never... um, He was always a good person. Um, so it gives a good some good background, but it also establishes. And we, again, we'd already had we have already had this a little bit on on the show, but the sort of repartee and like the the banter that Quark and 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 Odo have because they're kind of like a married couple, um, you know. <laughs> and it's very charming. And Quark's always up to no good, and Odo's like you know Quark, you know sort of thing. Yeah. And um, this is just another good little and it, and it just establishes. I mean, I think I said that um, Odo was stuck in his office. I don't think he was at this point in the episode, but when Quark comes to visit him, as you just said, that's when things escalate, and then they're stuck together, which is perfect because they're this funny little odd couple that on, on Deep Space Nine.
1: Yeah, and I love how that kind of uh, escalates later yeah. on. Yeah, um, but but back in in the sort of ore refinery, there's um, uh, they managed to find that they can open like the the panel to the tube uh to this pipe but that's because there's there's no molten iridium in the pipe so there was yeah. no need for any security measures on there but even though there's no security measures there, their time is still running out and they're being told that they'll have muracine gas released in the, like the next three minutes. Yeah. They, like, the Cardassians like, didn't waste any time.
0: No. And they're like, like obviously, all, all these systems were lying dormant. And so there's an element of, you know, you're thinking like in the back of your mind, like, did they not find any of this stuff? Is there a big, huge tank of like lethal gas? that it's just been sat there that no one thought, oh, that's a bit weird, there's a tank of lethal gas. Should we, like, maybe just empty it? <laughs> no, i just leave it. Like, or it was just really well hidden behind, you know, thoron fields mm-hmm. and uranium shadows or whatever. There's a reference for you for anybody that, um, is watching Deep, Deep Space Nine. Um, but yeah, um, so there's an there, there is a layer of that that's in the back of your mind as a viewer thinking how did this all this stuff just sit there dormant without anybody discovering it? Obviously you could, but yeah, you. But it's could a big just, station. Yeah, in you, your own sort of head cannon, as you know, I could call it. Um, you could easily just say, well, you know, he's Ducat's pretty clever. He might have hidden it really well, so Bajorans would not be able to find it. And so, yeah, you you, you can probably let let that go. Well, I think.
1: Well, we also don't know if Neurocene gas can be formed by mixing two other gases that's just part of the life support. Yeah, that's so, a good point. You know, that wouldn't surprise me that that's how the Cardassians would do it. I, I think that's the thing when it comes to the Kardashians. You, you, by the time you finish watching DS9, you kind of get to a point where you're like, nothing surprises me anymore. You know, <laughs> there's right. the fact that they would do something. Yeah, that's totally their M.O. Bloody Cardis. Yeah, but I do appreciate that Ducat is kind of giving the Bajoran workers a chance with this, but only a little bit. Probably the greatest villain of all time in Star Trek as well. Oh God, yeah.
0: I'm going to throw it out there. You know, sorry, sorry, guys. Anybody that's, that's agree with that? But yeah, um, I mean, no one. I mean, Khan might come close, and just the Borg, like in general. But without um, a single person, wow. <laughs>
1: And we really start to see that later in this episode. Yes. Um, and, and I love as well that as he's kind of talking in this recording, that Cisco is like, I never knew how much this man's voice annoyed me. <laughs> and... <laughs> That's what I love about Star Trek, you know, and Deep Space Nine's good
0: at this. Like even in, you get those lovely moments of just those little comments, those little funny, jokey moments, even in, you know, times of peril, you know, and Cisco and like hmm. O'Brien, they're really good at that stuff. Yeah, I like that.
1: Mm. So the the gas gets released. They manage to try and get out of the room. And then the computer knows that workers have escaped. So now they're on a station wide lockdown, which is not good. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you got the recording of Descartes saying that I will kill every Bajoran on this station. Uh, and the comms go down. There's like a dampening field. Now Cisco and Miles and Jake have, have gotten to this other room. And they're trapped in that one as well. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't just like a, a get out, and they're now back in the open. They're just they're trapped in. They're in a real
0: awkward, remote part of the station, basically. You know where, which is you know, which is understandable because they're obviously doing some kind of operation to sort of you know fix up stuff that's probably been left that they didn't get around to when they moved into the station. That's probably what this mm. whole operation has been about, isn't it? Really, that unfortunately is activating yeah. the security thing, but it also means they're kind of screwed in ops as well. They're kind of trapped in yes. there as well now.
1: Yeah, even though Kira tries to go for a less subtle approach of shooting the door while the force fields are open. But I do like Dax's point that that's more likely to protect the Cardassians in-ops than to trap them inside.
0: Yes, which is exactly right. Yeah, which makes total yeah. sense.
1: And going back actually to your, your comment earlier about just those nice little character moments, those lines that are thrown out. There's one from Bashir where he's just saying that he's just starting to feel the place as being home after three years. Yeah, And I, I certainly know for, from my perspective, moving all the way to Canada, three years was definitely when I was starting to feel, you know what, I'm actually feeling settled now. This is yeah. somewhere that's my day-to-day, you know, and 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 stuff. And it's, it's kind of nice seeing that that's how they're starting to see this very alien station.
0: And probably as a viewer, you know, you kind of feel, you know, you kind of know when you feel at home with the TV show, don't you? Mm. And um, probably by the third, with most Star Trek series, you know, with maybe the exception of the series, well, it's hard to say which one has a really good, maybe the original series has a really good first season, really, in comparison to some of the other first seasons. It might be one Mm. of the better ones, generally, but, um, I always think Voyager is a really good first season, but everyone disagrees with me on that and thinks it's insane it's crap. I'm like, no, eh, I think it's cool, quite good. But yeah, um, I, th- I think you kind of feel that as a viewer when you get to the third season of a Trek series. Normally, you know the characters pretty well. You've already gone, you know, you're getting to like 60 plus episodes at this point, aren't you, when you hit the early part of the mm. third season. So yeah, I think
1: you'll start to feel at home as a viewer as well. And, and the characterization for all of these two, Uh, I mean, this starts to really build on the antagonisms and affection between the characters. Uh, Around this point of the episode, you've got Quark complaining that he's stuck with Odo. And then Odo's like, no, I'm stuck with you, which is a far worse fate. Yeah, And stay away from (laughs) my computer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you really shouldn't let him on that computer because he could have, like, expunged all records of his criminal activity, you know. So yeah. just lock, lock lock your screen or something, you know. <laughs> mm. And, I mean, one thing that I do like about this episode that is not necessarily this particular scene that we're looking at, but in general, they really do well to avoid the temptation to build a gadget that will solve, um, you know, the whole situation, which is something that we mm. see, you know, that... You know, New New Star Trek is guilty of as well as well as old Star Trek, but um, that doesn't really happen at all. No one says, "Okay, hey, if I reroute this and do that and make this, I can make a thing that will just stop the whole the whole lot, and we're all good, yay!" They don't really do that at any point. Yeah, they come up with a plan. You know, when we get to the end, when we get which we'll get to, but it's you don't feel they've sort of um, it doesn't feel cheap. You know, when when, when they no. do that or too easy, which is good, and they avoided that.
1: Yeah. Jadzia then gets shot by a force field when she was reaching in front of an ODN conduit. Yes. Uh, getting second degree burns on her hands. So that kind of knocks her out for a bit. And of course, that then sets off level two.
0: Yeah. So the, that wasn't the, uh, what we saw already wasn't just the be all and end all. It appears to be able to escalate depending on the situation, which is a bit disturbing.
1: Yeah. So now we're looking at norocene gas in the habitat ring. And obviously, there's a lot of people trapped down there and garrick appears saying i believe that's the point major and i just love his entry just like that and and you start to realize that he because he's got access codes himself he can move through the force fields as as in they shut off for him to be able to step through and then they re-enable themselves the second he comes out so
0: which is great yeah
1: yeah he can move around but it's no it, one could follow him really yeah. No, it's, it's, and
0: they, so it shuts down that avenue of, you know, escape of instantly. Yeah.
1: Um, and we already yeah. know that these force fields are capable of second degree burns. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to be stepping your leg over that threshold. <laughs> yeah.
0: This isn't like a Federation one where you just, you know, you can just sort of lean against it almost and you won't damage yourself necessarily. You might get a little buzz from it, like a, you know, a video game controller mm. when you hit a, you know, crash in a racing game. But, um, yeah, the, this stuff actually injures you. So, yeah,
1: <laughs> you don't yeah. want to be doing that. But then they do come up with a, a pretty decent idea. Like you said, they don't, they don't come up with like a magical thing, but they, they realize that if they shut down life support, that will stop the system that releases the neurosine gas, which gives them 12 hours before they start to suffocate. But it's 12 hours. Which is probably
0: enough. Yeah, you could love, well, they've got the yeah. defiant. Everyone. I don't know what the maximum capacity of that is, but potentially you could get a decent chunk of people just on that. And they've got the runabouts, so um, they could potentially, um, you know, people could go in there. We know... Um, but
1: they've with, still got doors and transporters as is an issue.
0: Yeah, they've got the... Um, so the, the, it would take a while, but I think they could probably get a lot of people on. I mean, we know with runabouts, um, though we don't see one in this episode, but you see them a lot. Um especially in like the one episode of Next Generation timescape, you can see they've got a very large kind of dining section to them and like bunk beds and stuff. So they're like a, mm. almost like a camper van, but, a, but bigger. Um, <laughs> much bigger than just a shuttlecraft, you know, kind of like a camper van probably. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, with all, if you use like, I don't know, again, I don't know how many, maybe half a dozen they've got or something on, on the station. So there's potential... To clear some people, but there will be logistical issues with it because they haven't got transporters, as you say, or turbo lifts. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Another logistical issue that occurs, though, is that when they decide to shoot the life support system, then we get to level three of the counterinsurgency program because <laughs> the computer yeah. suddenly then thinks the ops has been taken over and that the cat is potentially dead. So the self-destruct gets enabled. <laughs> Yeah, so once again the uh,
0: Kira solution fails, which is shoot the thing, um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which has failed twice now. But you know, maybe she didn't know. Yeah. A second time, and then then we get back to Odo and Quark, and you really start to get they're starting to get more in depth with things now because all of this stuff's going on, and all it is for them is that they're just stuck with each other whilst all these alarms are going off and just they just hearing that things are getting worse, and Quark. Is starting to reflect on life and his accomplishments, and reflecting on how, in all that time, he's only got a bar, whilst his yes. cousin Galo has a moon.
0: Yeah, and I think Gayla, I think I don't know if this might be the first time he's mentioned him, but um, we hear it about Galo yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's constantly refers to the fact that he's got a moon, and he had, and he has got a bar, um, and we see him as well later on in the series when he actually turns up. Um, in a couple of episodes, I think. Um, one amazing episode where they, a, a team of Ferengi, have to go to a, a, another Deep Space Nine looking s- space station to do it. it. You know, I don't want to ruin it. It's a really funny, like, cool, like, episode. Deep Space Nine does comedy episodes really, really well, better than any other series. Um, but it's a really good one um, where a bunch of Ferengi team up. Um, but yeah, um, so it's an ongoing joke, isn't it, that he always references Gayla. Mm. And you see him uh, later on. But yeah, that's actually interesting. That's the first time that we hear about him.
1: Yeah. And then Garrick, I, G- Garrick's just written so well in this episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He really is. Because when he's asked if he's having any luck, he says plenty major, but all of it bad. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it's <laughs> like, uh, like he hasn't had much time to develop at this point. I mean, he's been in. He's been in little bits and pieces of episodes. He was in the second episode, actually. So he's been around pretty much from mm. the beginning. I think the the first big Garak episode was The Wire when he's uh, he thinks he's dying. Um, mm. Again, don't want to ruin it because I'm sure we'll cover it. But um, but that's in in terms of like the time frame of the, or the time span of the show. At that point, I think that was only about you know maybe eight nine episodes before this one. So we're still in the very early days of Garak really being developed into, you know, the amazing character that, you know, he ended up being.
1: Yeah. And there was the episode Cardassians as well. Yes. Where you got to to see the conflict between Garak and Ducat and how they really don't like each other. So that had already kind of started as well.
0: Keeping up with the Cardassians. <laughs> I believe it should be
1: called. Cool. He's wanting to fool the computer into thinking he's decap, but he he knows that there's problems with that, but is really impressed with Dax's idea of just fooling the internal sensors to detect that he's not him. You know, because it's going to be checking him at a cellular level.
0: Yeah, uh, but it also shows that Dax is like, is is kind of a a little genius, really. She's always, she was was constantly Mm. offering good advice and solutions. And it shows how, like, important she is to like the crew generally because of this she's able to sort of come up with these things um and also yeah yeah, it shows garrick as well as there's more to him than just being a tailor he knows his way around a computer and security codes and secret agent stuff you know we're not it's not explicit at this point that he is anything like that but yeah it's building up
1: and and bashir ends up commenting on that just saying that he wonders how many tailors know how to rewrite Cardassian security protocols. And he's like, I wouldn't yeah. even venture a guess. And then goes on to mention that Bashir's trousers are ready to be picked up. <laughs> I think he's, like, been readjusting them. But again, it's just kind of like, yeah. oh, by the way, whilst we're talking about tailor stuff, yeah. I've got your clothes ready. That's one thing that we always like, that interesting combination
0: that he's a tailor, but we all know that he's got something in his past where he was some awesome secret agent or, or something, you know, and we find out more later, but yeah, we get hints of that yeah. stuff in episodes like this.
1: And then we get to level four and, and I think as times are going on, you're like, okay, we're already at level three. The self-destruct has been activated and now we're at level four. What on earth is that? And of course, this is where the replicators just replicate phaser emitters. Yes, Which is pretty... Good technology for those replicators. I, I don't know if the Federation ones are capable of doing those that quickly, but the I Cardassian ones ca- certainly can.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think they won't be allowed to, to replicate like weapons normally um, unless someone mm. would have to override the controls. But yeah, obviously this protocol, as it's Cardassian, it can do that. Yeah. But I love the fact it, it replicates a very nice looking, I thought, oh, that's like a, like a teapot or something. But no, then phases start coming out of it, and it's like, wow, um, that's a bit dangerous—the teapot of death, in fact. And yeah, and you you see someone gets killed. Like they don't pull any punches. Like you see a dude mm. like literally get vaporized—a starfleet officer, not even some random Bajoran person. Um, not that would be any better or anything, but you know, uh, a starfleet officer gets killed. So it's like, and they all basically have to go and hide before they get
1: shot and vaporized. Yeah. And and something that I think. You don't even expect it because we know that there's ducat on the the monitors and stuff, but he actually beams in, which is actually a genuine surprise on the first viewing, because you just assume that you're just dealing with just this recording of him. But no, he's actually there.
0: And for a second, you think it is is—is this a hologram or something that it's starting to spit out? But no, it's it's actually him. And you're like, oh well,
1: wow. <laughs> yeah. He's like, let me guess, someone tried to guess my security access code. And he's surprised to receive a distress call from himself. Which also kind <laughs> of goes, he, he's gone through all of these things, all these recordings, and he's even gone to the trouble of setting up a distress call. Not just a generic one coming from the station, one from him. It's like, find
0: my iPhone or something, but like, find my distr- distress call or space station. there has <laughs>
1: <not, it's> got <laughs> stuff going on with it. Find my Terok <laughs> It's quite a clever program, to be fair to him. But but he's in no rush about entering his access code. You know he's just kind of strolling around because the phases aren't locking onto him; they'll lock onto anybody else.
0: The turret that got um, uh, the the, the replicate itself just seems to like be blasting past him, and you probably have already yeah. worked out that okay, this is like it, it's like tuned to not pick up him or something. Yeah, and that's literally mm. pretty much what it is.
1: Yeah. And, and he's saying, like, that he's got a few things to discuss, which you can kind of tell. Okay. He's got things on his mind. He goes over, orders tea from the replicator. So the phaser emitter disappears. His tea arrives. He picks it up and then the phaser comes back and resumes. <laughs> um, yeah. Then he spots Garrick, bursts into a fit of laughter, just at the sight of seeing him groveling in a corner, and that that alone made the trip worthwhile. Yes. But. Of course, Garrick also at that same moment clicks that it's not just Decat the phases aren't locking onto it's any Cardassian. So he he steps up and realizes that he's actually safe, and uh, Decat kind of regrets not adding Garrick to a target list. Yeah, he, he he wished he took him off the white list for the phaser. Yeah, <laughs> but he invites Kira to the office to talk, nonchalantly turns off the replicator. You know, he's just like, oh, right. Yes, I should, I should turn this off for you guys. You can just tell he's, he's having so much fun. He knows he's in control. He knows he's got all the power and then goes into the office, knocks Cisco's baseball off the desk, which obviously that baseball and Cisco and Ducat is just brilliantly played throughout the series yeah symbolic
0: isn't it of their antagonism yeah sort of thing yeah
1: yeah and and who's in charge of the station you know and it's almost like a message there, and he, he just flicks it off uh, and talks about how he wants a permanent cardassian presence in exchange for turning off the self-destruct because of course he does which is quite you
0: know quite quite uh quite a thing to ask just nonchalantly <laughs> Um, and he's just taken advantage of this random situation that's completely he's been fortunate enough to happen. Um, And you can tell this is something that he's wanted to be able to ask for the longest time, but he knows he would never be able Mm. to do it in a normal situation. And obviously Kira just tells him to go screw himself.
1: Yeah, yeah. He he almost tries to call a bluff as well, and you can tell that she doesn't care. That she would rather have the station blown up, which I think she actually says as well.
0: And Kira is really awesome. She doesn't take any crap from from like no cat. She's made of sterner stuff.
1: Yeah, and and if there's one person in the entire universe that she hates it's Dukat more than yep. anybody else. And they have a great arc
0: throughout the series um, as well. There's mm-hmm. moments when they almost get on. There's moments when they're going to kill each other. Um, much of the same with Cisco, but on a different level with but, um, with Major Kira because she obviously yeah. has like real trauma that was caused by him, basically. So there's a different mm-hmm. level. Um, yeah. And, and this is another, you can't really, it, it's just so nuanced, their relationship. And you know this kind of it's not it's developed too much in this one episode but generally it is a again another reason why Ducat is just such an, an a, a great villain and and
1: he he is convinced that they've got no other choice so he he decides to be like okay well there's 30 minutes left on the self destruct i'll give you 25 minutes to think it over and and i'll I'll come back so he tries to beam out and it doesn't work yeah it fails yeah And then he gets a recording from his former commanding officer who thinks that Ducat is abandoning the station in cowardice. (laughs) So immediately rescinds all the codes and informs Ducat that he should stay on the station and die like a true Cardassian. So not only is it that he's made all these recordings, but even his commanding officer is like, yeah I don't trust you, so I'm going to put in my own recording, yeah. And we know now there's
0: nothing anyone can do because the, the command codes won't work anymore. And it also shows that you know the way Cardassians treat like each other and how they sort of you know how Ducat is viewed even by his own people um adds another mm. little layer on um and a really clever like like double sort of you know plot twist, you know that. We've only just seen Ducat turn up and like basically hold the whole station to ransom, uh, only for him to be foiled by his own program that someone has tweaked because they thought he might, you know, end up, you know, trying to run away or something, and probably didn't have a good relationship with his commanding officer. So, yeah, that's a really good twist <laughs> uh, to to the story. That was um, it was really like a wah-wah kind of moment for um, Ducat. there. yeah, yeah,
1: because Ducat's not really defeated by anybody on the station no he's defeated by his own reputation with his own people yeah and suddenly he's now in the in the thick of it with everybody else
0: it would have been difficult to see how they would have gotten out of it without um this happening they would have had to have made some kind of a compromise you know kira would have had to hmm. just let the kardashians on and sort out sort it out later because they were absolutely um they weren't going to come up with anything else, I don't think, with the short amount of time no. that they had.
1: Uh, unless it would be try and capture him and, and threaten him. I guess.
0: Yeah, but he could beam out, maybe, or I don't really, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Or oh, just come up. I, th- I think that's where, in the 25 minutes, they come up with some MacGuffin, if it was poorly written. That's
0: probably what it would have been. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: But while Cisco and Miles lighting a fuse to blow a hole in the door with some of the, the rocks... You know the the awe that they've they've got there and, and escape. Ducat is continuing to come up with ideas and is kind of showing off a little bit. And yeah. it's not something that I picked up on on my first viewing. I remember when I watched it originally, I never picked up on it. But then Garrick picks up that Ducat is trying to impress Kira. Yeah, because you know that Garrett can read people that well, and is. I think that was the first time you start to really get that sense of oh, so there's actually some weird twisted interest that he still has with Kira. Yeah. But yet still manages to come up with a plan to override the power grid to take everything offline and actually surprises people that he does actually come up with a a, a decent idea. Yeah.
0: It's it's like, again, like, I mentioned about the nuanced relationship that sort of uh, Kira and Dukaz, this uh, this has added another layer on where there's a weird attraction. Like, I don't know if it's... I think mm. it's implied that it is mutual in some way, but um, that's probably the might be the first time that that's suggested. I think only in this episode,
1: Yeah. though, because I think that after this, that changed. Because I remember seeing an interview with Nana Visitor where she was kind of saying that she... You know, that Keir was supposed to see Dekat as being like Hitler. Yeah, yeah. And... She wasn't too happy with the way that that was handled that way, uh, in that she didn't take it uh, as maliciously as she would have done otherwise. Yeah, and that she certainly does later in the show.
0: It wouldn't have been a good way for their relationship to go. For that, for them to become a weird having an no. attraction because of, you know she, he basically murdered lots of people. You know the, her, yeah. the she her family and everything. So yeah, there's, it would have yeah. been really completely wrong to do that. Yeah, and it, 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 it yeah. didn't really. It was. It, a little bit implied, perhaps, but nothing more than that, yeah. thankfully. Yeah,
1: I'm glad they took it in the direction that they ended up taking it. Yes. Than where they could have gone.
0: Definitely, um, yeah.
1: But they they take down the power grid. Uh, everything kind of comes back online. Kira's able to hail Cisco, And it's one of those, those fun things where it's kind of like good news because the force fields are down, the doors are open, but given how many explosions they just had on the ship with the power grid going out... God knows how much work they just created for O'Brien. Yeah, I mean, you know,
0: it's, it can't be that much different from when it when they moved into the station. You know, they also did the no. scorched earth thing, and when they left, the Cardassians and like destroyed the inter the insides of the station. So yeah, he's not far from that right now.
1: Yeah, and they, they but they don't tell him either. They're just kind of like you know everything's back online. They don't tell him we did it by blowing up the power grid. Sorry, Miles, you're gonna be busy.
0: Yeah. Sorry,
1: babes. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, but it gets, it gets everything apart from one place because obviously the force field around Odo's office is still up and it's a separate system because it's designed to keep Odo in because Odo realizes that obviously they would have seen him as being a security risk.
0: Yeah, because he wasn't a Cardassian. He wasn't really working for the Cardassians. So yeah, they didn't trust him because of that. And that is just yeah. clear now.
1: And, and when he's discussing this with Quark as well, Quark immediately just kind of responds with, and I know why. And he's like, oh, do you? It's like, because they knew you were an honourable man, the kind of person who would do the right thing regardless of the circumstances. And now your integrity is going to get us both killed. I hope you're happy. Which is kind of a compliment, but in a backhanded way, you know. Yeah, which, which is one of the the things that their relationship always has, that they, they do admire each other and they do pay each other genuine compliments. Yeah. But the backhand always has to be there to ground their relationship.
0: just goes to show how many of these relationships happen in, in, in in this show, you know, more than any Mm. other Star Trek show. And they're all fascinating. You know, it's just, my Space Nine is brilliant.
1: Odo and Quark, uh, my, my favorite pairing of, all of the different characters that, that we have on the show, when when you have those two together, just this kind of relationship that they have, even like when the, the series ends, you know, Odo refuses to say goodbye to Quark, and that's how Quark knows that Odo loves him. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just very charming, even though it's antagonistic, but in a, in a mm. like I said, a married couple kind, kind of way.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. just great. Yeah. So, Cisco and, and everyone are kind of stuck. It's kind of like a. I don't know what the Jeffy's tubes would be called on on the station, but there's a fire in there. It's, it's a green fire. Oh, it's got kind of a plasma thing, or might, might be plasma. It's something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Cisco tells Jake to stay behind, uh, whilst he and uh, and O'Brien kind of go. O'Brien passes out. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of amusing
0: because because O'Brien hmm. kind of gets a little bit of the way along in this tube, and they explicitly say to each other, "Right, no matter what happens to the other person, just keep going, so we can get to the end of it. because We have to turn off this self-destruct thing." Yes, and um, and what is it? It was like they what they, uh, they they overload. They're trying to overload the fusion reactor or something, or stop it from overloading. Yeah, world, yeah. It's a really weird, like like the self-destruct thing it has. But um, yeah, O'Brien kind of just like a couple of sparks happen, and O'Brien goes like, "Oh, ah, ah." And kind of just passes out, but then wakes up again and then passes out again, and then, yeah <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny
1: in a weird way,
0: the way he acts it.
1: yeah but it, it leads to a wonderful character moment because you uh, for Jake, yes because uh, Jake rescues him, uh, you know pulls him out and and then O'Brien's like, I thought your father told you to stay out of here." and there's a long pause. It's not a quick retort. It's not a fast response. It's just a long pause. And then he says, if you don't tell him, then I won't. Yeah. And it was just a realistic comeback pause. It's it's the the one where, especially for a young person, just trying to think of a a witty response. And I, I just thought it felt so genuine. With... Kids in Star Trek, it's always been that kind of awkward thing. But certainly by this point of the series, Jake and Nog aren't just the annoying bratty kids running around the station and causing a ruckus. Yeah,
0: and Jake gets to do something significant in this episode. I mean, he basically saves Chief O'Brien's life. So it's a really nice bit of development for him. He's not just, you know, hanging around Cisco and being like uh, and uh, getting in the way. He's actually helped them to escape at the start of the episode. Yeah, it just shows that, you know, he's a well rounded, sort of nice, sort of dude, you know, and mm. well adjusted kind of person that's just kind and sweet, really. And it's nice. Not in a, not in a cheesy way or like a corny way, um, uh, uh yeah. either, you, you know, yeah. It's kind of a compliment to Cisco as, uh, captains or commander Cisco, um, Benjamin, as it is to Jake, you know, because he's <laughs> raised him to be, to be this way. Um, so, yeah, yeah. That's, it's, a, it's a nice moment. Not overdone or anything, like you say, just a, mm. a nice subtle kind of little, little touching moment, that is, yeah.
1: Yeah. If there's something that this episode has, I'd say is that it has lots of heart. Yes. There's, as I said earlier, it builds on the antagonisms and affections between all of these characters, that the pairings between them, where you have two characters just kind of bouncing off each other is just brilliantly done. Yeah, Everything's genuine and you're getting these glimpses into their relationships with each other and how they are kind of a close knit group that have developed over like the previous two and a bit years.
0: Yeah. I mean, and know you've also, you know, these types of episodes where there's been a ship wide or station wide disaster are really good opportunities for those sort of, Character developments and having people in close quarters that are separated. I mean, next generation has the episode disaster, which is kind of reminiscent of this in some ways, um, where you've got people in disparate parts of the ship that are trapped and have to work together, mm. and they get to know each other better, and as parts of their you know personality and, and you know an um, ingenuity come out that otherwise wouldn't. Um, you know, the Galileo Seven on the original series, um, things like that. Um, there, you know, the episode of Voyager when like. Um, Paris and Neelix have to look after a baby reptile thing that um, (laughs) That. but yeah um, that was kind of charming as well Um, yeah it's just these sorts of episodes are really good but it it does help when the characters are already strong you know um, and they are in Deep Space Nine so yeah they just come to the fore even more than they otherwise would
1: Mm -hmm. And, and then of course it kind of wraps up with Odo and Quark, which is is the best way to end the episode. In all honesty,
0: well, Cisco successfully sort of um uh, cancel. It, it's to us, it's a bit. Uh, it's probably the weakest part of the episode is how they stop the self destruct. I mean, like yeah. the energy that was going to go into blowing the station up, they find a way to kind of have it so it just it just flies out into into space, and they and, and like they put the sh- they turn on the shields, so the shields absorb it. It's a little bit, I kind, of, I kind of glazed over a little bit when they were explaining it because it wasn't super clear. It wasn't like a big mm. like, countdown with a big orb flashing going, it will blow up, it will blow up. And then Cisco just like presses, types a bunch of stuff in and and it shuts down. And if, that the way you sort of, you can see him frantically, I don't know if they were isolinear chips or rods or something, but he was sort of frantically moving them into position to get it to do what mm. it needed to do. That probably was a bit better than just saying a command into the computer or typing on an L-Cars thing. Um, so that was yeah. a little bit better, but the actual, the ending was a bit, what well, didn't quite satisfy as much as it might have done. I, it was very abrupt.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's for a couple of reasons, which, one of which I'll get into in a little bit. But I think one of them is just time. Yeah. They, they didn't all the build up, and I, I think it's almost forgivable just because getting them out of being trapped That felt like a good payoff. You almost kind of forget that when the grid is taken down, that the self-destruct is still going. Yes, And they just get that turned off as quickly as possible. If it took out the auto-destruct thing, then that would have been satisfying in terms of just, okay, and now everything's off. But it also would have felt a bit cheaty that it, it resolved everything in one go. So... It is that tough balance. Maybe if they were able to have like an extra five minutes, that yeah. may have been enough to provide that kind of stuff yeah. uh, that they just wouldn't have had the time for. Um,
0: to be honest, they don't really have, it might just be the set. I mean, they just kind of crawled through a small tube and then there was kind of a weird like access area that where Cisco did his stuff. I mean, it's not like they had to fight their way to like a, a cool mm. looking engineering set like Voyager or Next Generation would have. Which would just visually look better and be a bit more dramatic. So that might be a better way, but obviously that you you couldn't really do that. It was disappointing the way it ends, but um, it's so didn't, so. Didn't how would
1: how how would you have liked to have seen them take you know shut down the auto destruct? How how would that have been more satisfying for you?
0: Um, you know what? I couldn't. I, I can't even think of a, of a better way that it, that it would have
1: happened. <laughs> I mean.
0: I, I'm trying to think of another um, episode where there's a similar situation that was resolved a bit better, but um, I can't really think of one. Yeah, it, it was the only bit... I mean, this is this is not to say it was poor. It, it certainly wasn't. It was just a bit meh, you know. And um, it didn't bring down the overall quality of the episode, though it was still very, very good.
1: No. And, and I think you're already riding the high of just everything else that's just come from before. And, and then yeah. it very quickly goes back into Odo and Quark, where Quark has finally managed to get access to the computer that Odo's been telling him just to stay away from. yeah, And he finds his file (laughs) that Odo has (laughs) on him, which, you know, after all this time, and we're not, like you said, they've been on the station a lot longer than the Federation have. All this time, he must have been just dying to know what Odo had put on (laughs) file for him. Yeah, And it comes up as a self-important con artist who's no way near as clever as he thinks he is. (laughs) <laughs> he points out he's like two hours ago you complimented me as the most devious ferengi you'd ever met
0: it's almost like nope. um like it's almost like you know odo went on like um uh, quark's uh, memory alpha article and just like and just like trolled him by just putting yeah quark is such an idiot and no one likes it <laughs> it's like a, there's a meme i saw that uh, where it showed Skeletor on wikipedia um, up, um, vandalizing He-Man's Wikipedia article, saying He-Man is a complete idiot who hangs around with a bunch of fools in Castle Grace girl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was almost like, you know. <laughs> but I, th- I think his retort is one of the best ways. He says, I thought we were going to die. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it, it kind of ends as they, they're walking out of the office and, you know, Quark's wanting to know who could possibly actually be a better Ferengi than than Quark. He starts off pointing out about his cousin Gela. He's like, well, what about people you know? Your brother, Rom. <laughs> He's like, My brother. Every Ferengi you can think of. Like, yeah, it, yeah. It, pretty much every Ferengi that we've met so far and that we know yeah. about. Like, even the Grand Nagus is mentioned.
0: Yeah, he would have got to everybody
1: eventually, I think. Yeah. It, it's one of those episodes that, for me, I mean, it, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Just because of all these kind of different character moments. But the thing that astonishes me is that it was all last minute because they spent ages writing this episode and couldn't get it to work. Apparently tons of people wrote it and it was rejected by Pillar over and over and over again. Ira was saying that it was just one of the toughest shows to write and then just somehow in the last minute, it all clicked together and they they finally had a script that worked oh wow yeah and and watching it you'd have no way of knowing no not really I mean it's basically um
0: I wouldn't say it's your fairly standard bottle show but it is literally a bottle show I mean it takes place in like four rooms really and you doesn't really but you don't really feel like it's claustrophobic, well it is cla- you do feel like it's claustrophobic but in but in a, a way that benefits the show because they're trapped and the shit the, the station is going to blow up so it's really effective in, 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 in that way, I think.
1: And, and one of the other things as well is that you have Ducat as a villain because he'd been on a few times. And, and, and this is one of the, the, the traps that you get into in a show. The more you bring a character back, for people to want to see that character back, you need to make them friendly. So Stargate, for example, had Woolsey. He's played by Robert Picardo, the EMH from Voyager. and he is this really bad guy who's come in to assess the Stargate program, and he's supposed to be somebody you absolutely hate. But they kept bringing him back, and so his character—I mean, it's good for his character because it grows and develops. But he becomes more likable over time.
0: Yeah, there's one I can think of in Star Trek. Is uh, not another one is um, Ambassador um, Saval in Enterprise. Mm. Who starts off yes. as a really basically an antagonist to Captain Archer, but at the end is basically like he helps them and is kind of friendly because you kind of you yeah know, you grow to like him sort of thing yeah.
1: And I, I think there was always going to be a risk of that happening with the cat, but yes. with this episode especially, it really kind of brings him back to no, he is the bad guy and he's a villain, and they just keep doubling down. But they have times where and and. This goes to your point earlier about him being one of the best villains that Star Trek's ever had. Because we've obviously got people like Khan who are regarded as a brilliant villain. But the amount of time that you get with Dekat, you get to see so much more depth to his character. And you also get to see that everything that he does, some things are good, like him coming up with the solutions that he came up with in this episode. But even the most horrific, terrible things imaginable that he wants to do, he believes he is the hero. He believes yeah. he's doing things that are right. Yeah. And that's what makes him so dangerous and yeah. so evil as a villain and believable as a villain.
0: He would only work in, in a TV show like Deep Space Nine, which has that long-running arc you know, that's always going on in the background. It may not always directly... You know, the episode might not be about that. I mean, this episode isn't really. Uh, but there's still those strands running in the background of Bajorans and Cardassians and their relationship and how the Federation fit into that are always in the background mm. and always developing. And um, you can even take these sort of standalone episodes still have the development of characters like Ducat. You know, we, we, we learn more about his relationship with Major Kira. We learn more about his relationship with his own people people with Garak with you know his superior um officer how he's you know paranoid and has made the security system and all of that stuff. You picked up all of these threads just from what is basically a fairly throwaway episode. Not in the sense that it's not any good, it is good, but an episode that doesn't really you know no one's gonna be no one really doesn't affect the overall storyline. It's just a bottle show mm. at the end of the day. But Deep Space Nine is really good at this stuff. And um that's why we loved it. Um Deep Space Nine. Yeah. yeah.
1: And this is why this is one of my favorite episodes, because it is just one of the perfect examples of that, especially early on in the show.
0: That wraps up our episode of Long Range Sensors. So if you have any questions for us on the show, uh, you can reach us via Twitter at Star Trek LRS. You can visit our website at longrangesensors.com uh, You can email us directly. Any questions that you've got at longrangecensors at icloud.com. Um, You can discuss this episode with us over on our exclusive private Discord channel by joining the crew of the USS Atlantic at patreon.com forward slash long-range sensors. You can choose from our science operations and command division tiers to give you exclusive benefits. And once we hit our goal of 15 patrons, we'll also begin releasing exclusive extended cuts of the show too. Um, If you enjoy listening to the show, please also consider telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or smuggling a message to a loved one on an unregistered cargo ship. Um, Word of mouth is one of the best ways to share our content and goes a long way to help our show reach even more people. Um, My name is Trev. You can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Um, I've got another podcast um, about modern and retro video gaming uh, with my co-host, Stu. Uh, It's
1: over at consoleshop.net. Al, where can people find you? Well, you can find everything I'm up to at com. Uh, you can follow me at both at alistairmcfly and at imcfly on Twitter. And if Twitch streams are your thing, you can also check out my channel where I stream Minecraft, Among Us, and alternate between some classic Star Trek and Star Wars games over at twitch.tv slash alistairmcfly.
0: You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where our counterinsurgency program
1: never goes beyond level two. I'm <laughs> sorry.